0: Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. I have to give a big, big shout out to my new sponsor. It's a great sponsor. It's a Blowfish for Hangovers. And I'll tell you something, people. Football season's coming up, so you're going to be drinking on Sundays. You're going to be drinking on Mondays. You're going to be drinking on Thursdays. You're going to be drinking all the time. You don't want to feel like crap at work. So what you got to do is you got to get this product. It's perfect for hangovers. It's effervescent Morning After Hangover Remedy. And it's a formulation recognized by the FDA as effective in the treatment of hangovers. And so, just you know, this isn't some of that herbal BS—you know, the stuff they say, oh, this is going to work, but it's not. This is real medicine, pain reliever to get you feeling great, caffeine to get you back in the game, and it's fast-acting and has a great, refreshing lemon flavor. And here's what you can do: you can get it at CVS, which they have it, or you can go to their website, forhangovers.com. That's forhangovers.com. And if you put Cooper as a promo code, my last name, you get 20% off your order. So check out. Lowfish for hangovers and go to forhangovers.com and check it out anyway we have a great guest today i'm going to tell you what makes my guest really great is one he's a philly area guy and you know i'm from cherry hill and two i found out that he he used to hang in avalon as a kid because my friend ed orzak who owns the paisley christmas shop in stone harbor said he knew this guy years ago and just last year i believe when he was when my guest was playing in uh, aspen at the belly up Ed gave him a Phillies hat, and the guy wore the hat the rest of the show. So you know the guy's cool. My guess is G-Love. How you doing? I'm
1: doing good. How are you doing,
0: Steve? Good. Do you remember uh, my friend Ed? I don't know. He said he was in Aspen. It's the night Bowie died because he said you closed or you played Suffragette City, and he brought and right. gave, he gave you a Phillies hat, and you wore it during the show. I'm
1: going to
0: have to say yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, So you're a Philly guy. Yeah. Okay. So now, now, I was reading. You know, you started playing guitar at a really young age.
1: I did. I started playing. Yeah, I was born and raised in Philadelphia. I was born at Pennsylvania Hospital, which is uh, on Eighth, Ninth, and Lombard, and uh, I lived at Thirteenth and with Beverly Walk, which is off of Lombard, till I was about four, and then my parents moved to Second and Delancey, where I, where they where we stayed till you know, I left to pursue my music um, and moved to Boston. But, uh, yeah, born and raised in Philadelphia. I started playing guitar when I was around eight years old. Uh, and my first lessons were at Settlement Music School in Philadelphia, and that was kind of where I got the first taste of music.
0: What what gravitated you to playing a guitar, especially at such a young age? Because so many of us, you know, I mean, I, I had a guitar lab in high school. I played the sax in sixth grade but we we drift away from it. What made you want to play guitar at at that young age? Did your parents want you to pick up an instrument, or did you just see something that influenced you? What happened?
1: It's funny because, um, you know, my my family, well, I should say my immediate family, my parents weren't really music people. So they didn't spin records at home. It was like at night, the TV was on, like the evening news. You know, that's what, in the morning, it would be the Today Show, you know what I mean? But um, there was not a lot of music in the house. Um, however, you know, my mother did have like a small but really great record collection, which I you know, I stumbled upon in the basement in my you know, my tween years. But they had stuff like Bob Marley, Bob Dylan, Donovan, um, Carol King, Willie and Willie Nelson and William Jennings, uh, Doctor John, and a couple other stuff. So that was a big influence, but first of all, like uh, my mother, um, it was just one of those things. You know, I, I think I remember. It. I was probably seven or eight, and the radio was on, and I was like, you know, just like banging on the back of the seats of the beat. And I remember my mom said, "Oh, you got the beat. You should play a musical instrument. What do you? What would you want to play?" And I said, "Oh, I want to play guitar." <laughs> that was it. So she put me in. Uh, You know, folk guitar lessons, and I was really terribly ungifted and no natural ability. um, And for some reason, I stuck with it. And when I was about 13, I was still taking lessons, and I could finally tune the thing. So then it started sounding good. And um, then puberty
0: took over. So you started playing at a young age. And now when did you figure out, I mean, was there a certain point where you said, this is what my life's going to be? Because, you know, it's I mean, it's a big it's a big dedication. I know a lot of musicians and I know a lot of actors who, you know, it's a a big chunk of their life. I mean, what age did you say, Okay, man, you know, I'm going balls to wall and this is this is what I want to do.
1: Yeah, you know, I, 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 I know that it was, um, so right. So when I was eight, I started When I was 13, I could tune it. That's five years. Um, I was learning Beatles tunes, a lot of Beatles songs and other songs. I was being taught to sing and play, right? Not just to play. I was being taught to sing songs, right? And, um, now when I was 15, I don't really know why, but I think subconsciously it was list- through listening to the Beatles and Bob Dylan. But when I was 15, I wrote my first song, and that that was like a, and it was a like a knee jerk reaction to my best friend, who's now my manager, going to boarding school and um, uh, being in love with this. Eighth grader. I was in ninth grade. Isn't that great though? You think about
0: a song going being in love with an eighth grader. (laughs) (laughs) It's perfect.
1: I mean my first true love, you know. But um, yeah, uh, and it was, and that was another interesting thing because at that moment i I was grappling with these different emotions, and I put them together from two different sides of my life. Right, so I had to puppy love with this 8th grader and then also my best friend was leaving to go to boarding school so I was sad, right? My best friend was leaving town, So I wrote this song that encompassed all those feelings and um, and that was the first outlet I had as a songwriter and that was just a tremendous kind of um, gift to walk into. Like, okay, I had all the tools, right? Because I had now taken guitar for seven years even though I was lousy, but I had a good grasp now of, of simple chords and what goes together and um i could write songs so that's what i started to do and shortly after that once i was writing songs then i had this kind of instinctive desire to go perform the songs for people and and record the songs on on my tape recorder and you know those were the beginnings the stepping stones that led me to Realize my career
0: Now were you a guy Who was down there Were you playing on South Street And stuff like that Or where were you Playing at Or were you, I Because mean, it wasn't Coffee shops Weren't big then So I mean Where would you go And gig at
1: Yeah so um, So I, I did I, I grew up You know Blocks Literally Two and a half Blocks away From South Street Which if anybody's From Philadelphia You know That's where Everybody goes To walk around so all different walks of life. And especially in the 70s and the 80s when I was you know, a kid around there, it was a really artistic, vibrant culture. And there's a lot of different energies coming together. And um, there was a lot of street performers. There was folk musicians. There was magicians. There was jugglers. There was a guy that played Mozart on wine glasses. There was puppeteers. I mean, it was unbelievable to grow up there was, like, an old guy from, like, he was called Big Al. He, he must have been 80 years old when I was, like, you know, seven or eight. And he would sit on the milk crate, play the spoons and the harmonica. I mean, it was, like, really old-time shit, you know? And um, I grew up seeing of It made a big impression. So, you know, whatever. When we were 15, 16, we just kind of as a as on a lark or whatever, we're like, let's go playing on the street. So... You know, we did it, and well, we made like twenty bucks.
0: So you're a professional. Oh my
1: gosh, that's amazing! This is like 1986 or 1987. You're like twenty bucks. Oh, are you kidding me? That's all.
0: So then it was like,
1: oh, you know, so that kind of did become the first gig, and then there was a couple of coffee shops around. There's a place called McCam's Kitchen that was on like 23rd and pine I used to play and then there was a Sam Adams brew pub up on Phantom Street where they would have an open mic night which somehow I was able to finagle my way in and play so there was things there was some outlets but certainly the street was the first one
0: so you're playing on the street and you're doing it but then you decide to go to college right yeah and, Yeah. and now where, um, where, where, where you went to Skidmore
1: yeah I went to Skidmore College um, you know like I so there there was a, a moment like when I was junior year or whatever. I definitely remember. I didn't. I only cut school a couple times. One time was my, this little girlfriend I had. And we sat out on the hill by the Society Hill Towers, and I had my bag lunch that my mom made me. And um, I said to my little girlfriend, "All I, all I need is this bag lunch and my guitar." <laughs> And that's all I want to do. Like, I just want to play music. I don't want to go to college. I had this vision in, in my head. And a big influence of mine was this blues man who still is my huge influence and a dear friend now, John Hammond. And I was able to see him perform when I was in high school. And he basically had been a blues legend since the 60s and been playing you know riding around playing coffee houses and small clubs and um i thought man wouldn't that be something to make one record and get to ride around and play music and that's all i want i don't care about money i don't care about anything else i just want to play music i don't so yeah but then i did go to college to you know please my parents
0: right and <laughs> now but you you left after like a year right
1: yes yeah, so i went to college So, at Skidmore College, um, it was a very artistic college, which was great. It was, I had grown up in the city, in downtown Philadelphia, this college was in a small town called Saratoga Springs, New York, beautiful kind of country, small town, USA type deal. And um, a lot of great musicians at the school, like really gifted, Musicians. So now this was 1991, Fish was huge, and the jam band scene was kind of morphing into this groove-oriented jam scene, which I kind of um, think was kind of um, influenced by, in particular, by Stevie Wonder's record, Higher Ground, if you know that record. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really funky record, and that's what these kids were doing. He was doing like a really kind of technical, funky jam sound. Nothing at all to do with what I was feeling, which was based on Robert Johnson, you know, John Lee Hooker, John Hammond, Bob Dylan, kind of primitive, um, well, not really primitive, but, you know... Guts-y. It's gutsy. Music. It's gutsy,
0: bluesy, you know, just something with more yeah, feeling.
1: Blues. Yeah, blues oriented. Like, the, everybody in that school was trying to play as many chords as possible. I was just trying to play one chord and get as much feeling across as possible. So, I, long story short, I I pursued my craft there at college. I continued to write songs. I got heavy into my practice time and writing and shedding, And I also, because I had moved away from the city, now I was able to look back at the city and really realize I missed the city. I in high school I always wrote these songs about leaving the city and going to the country. And now, when I was in the country, now I was writing songs about (laughs) the city streets and the basketball courts and writing graffiti and being a bike courier and all the experiences that I grew up knowing about and um, kind of like I felt like I was part of some secret club because I was from the streets of Philadelphia and, here you I know, was up with all this these college kids, which I didn't like because I didn't like being, it was here I was like, it was, you know, a private college. It was all rich white kids and I wanted to be, back in the city where you're kind of anonymous and there's people from South Street where I grew up, it was a melting pot of Philadelphia. There was the birth of punk, the birth of hip hop, you know, the birth of gay rights, rich people, poor people,
0: we, we always, homeless
1: people, gangs, families, everybody. Yeah, you know, we, everybody was there.
0: We always said about South Street is it was like twelfth and south was a cutoff like you were safe for 12th and South to park but once you got the 13th and 14th and 15th it got a little sketchier yeah Is
1: it? yeah <laughs> exactly yeah you know I would say more like 10th street really <laughs> yeah I, and then like I used to, and then like later on I I started getting grew my hair out and I started going up like the uh, 13th and South to get like braided at the African to get cornrows at the African <laughs> braid shop <laughs>
0: Now how'd you end up in Boston?
1: Uh so I ended up in Boston, um so so at Skidmore, I, I decided around spring break, you know, I decided that you know what, like I knew I had something and I, I felt like I had something special. I felt like I couldn't get people I could play solo acoustic shows which I was up there and that was cool I felt like I couldn't get the band members that I wanted to get the really good guys didn't want to play what I was playing so I was stuck with the guys that were like not really technically advanced Um, and it wasn't going to go anywhere I I, I don't know know what it was I made made a move I was like you know I'm I'm out man I'm going to go do my thing and I want to give my music a chance. Uh, I liked academics, you know. Other than that, I didn't mind the work. I just I wanted to get out. So my parents came pick me up spring break, take me back to Philly for the week or whatever. And it's a four-hour drive from Saratoga to Philly, and about two hours. And I told them, "Hey, I want to take a year off the next next year. Or I want to go back to college." You know, my mom cried the rest of the two, two hours home.
0: <laughs> it's like, yes, yeah, it's because it's such a shocking thing. It's like, you know, most yeah. people are like, okay, stay in college. You know, you have something to fall yeah. back on. But when you're like, screw this, I'm out of here, your parents are probably like, come on, man. And,
1: and, you know, they were really supportive. It was cool. But I was basically like, um, you know, I want to go off. And so a friend of a friend had a friend that needed a roommate in Boston. And I was thinking either Montreal, New York, New Orleans, or Boston. I knew in Boston you could get a that street performer's license, a permit. So uh, I, I took a trip to Boston. I got my permit. I told my parents, just give me a year, see if I can make this music happen. In the meantime, I'll you know apply to BU or whatever, which I did, and got accepted and I moved to Boston that summer of ninety so that was the summer of 91, 92, Right? Yeah, summer of ninety one. Wait, wait. No, no, it must have been summer of ninety two.
0: Okay, summer ninety two, you're in Boston.
1: Uh, yeah. And I and I hit the streets, man, and um and you know I would take I lived in Jamaica Plains, this neighborhood of Boston, and I would take the thirty nine bus to the uh, green line at Copley Square and take the green line to the red line at Park Street and then take the Park Street red line to Harvard Square and I was part of uh, history because there was you know a lot of great people came out of bosking and Harvard Square like Tracy Chapman maybe even Bonnie Raitt uh, I don't know a lot, a lot of people um,
0: Were you making money when so, you were doing
1: it? No So so, in Philadelphia, you would almost be guaranteed to make 20 bucks on the street if you put your case out. And a couple of people might steal a couple of bucks out of your case. Most people just throw change in it. In Boston, there was so much competition. These guys would be out making a living off of street performance. So, they had like a Bose PA hooked up to like two car batteries nice microphones they're playing cover music it sounds great you know one guy played like all just Bob Marley (laughs) legends songs like (laughs) over and over again every day no woman no cry three little birds blah blah and then our guy played all the Neil Young and you know Bob Denver and you know Beatles acoustic songs you could ever want to hear and then there was me. I was playing like Delta blues, and then my first um, versions of like blending hip hop and you know, rap lyrics and like blues look. And okay. I, I, I didn't make any. I would make maybe five bucks a day.
0: So how did how did you but start?
1: Better,
0: how did you start but, blending that stuff in?
1: Well, um, it kind of like so I told you when I went to Skidmore, I started writing more about my experience growing up in the city of Philadelphia so I started writing like um, there's songs that are notable I think are there's one called Rhyme for the Summertime which is about like being a bike courier Uh, another one was Shooting Hoops which is about the scene at the you know inner city Philadelphia basketball courts um, which which in the summertime it's like a really huge scene and it's very vibrant and uh, it's, it's like a place where you know playground legends man it's like the real deal and, um, and then there's something called writing on the walls which was about you know, writing graffiti um, which was something we used to do when we we're in high school and so I was writing all that and I, I basically looking back I, I think of it as like urban poetry right? at the time I called it Streetside Blues. So I called it Put Something Streetside Blues. And, um, and that's still what I call it. Uh, that's the heart of what I do. And um, that led to me putting more and more words in my song. And then I just kind of naturally started rapping one night over um, a blues riff. I started rapping the lyrics from one of my there were hip-hop tunes, Eric B and Rakim's paid in full. And after that, I was like, at that very moment, that was like the epiphany. Like, I knew at that moment that there was no other white kid playing a dobro and rapping anywhere in the world. Yeah. So,
0: yes. And, to your are trend-setting. Uh,
1: I, 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 and, and I had always had this instinct in me that I didn't want to be like everybody else, whether it was the clothes I wore or the people that I hang out with or the places that I went or the music that I played. I wanted to be original in my own way. And um, I, I understood that at a young age. Like, And, and whenever anybody asks me now, what advice do you have for you know, up-and-coming musicians? Well, be original. Because anybody can play all the lip anybody can play all the chords anybody can play everybody else's songs but if you can come up with something that you do it just enough in your own way that it's a little different from what everyone else is doing then you got something
0: so so you're playing you're getting your own sound so when do you start getting into recording and starting to get off the street and getting your career in a different in a different you know direction
1: so so I had always... That's another thing. I always kind of, um... Had an instinct to record... Or a desire... Like I said, like when I first started writing songs... It was like a knee-jerk reaction to record them on my box, right? So I started at a young age, like, submitting demo tapes to talent contests and... Blah, blah, blah. And doing auditions and stuff like that. Um... Because once I started writing songs, I, I had this thing in me that I wanted to make it, whatever that was going to be. So, yeah. So, then when I moved to Boston, um, yeah, this is a good one. So, there's like, there's back in the day, like, the city papers, right? Um, there was, the Boston one was the Boston Phoenix. So, and I'm always looking through the classifieds, right? And, uh, oh, manager seeks talent send <laughs> your demo kiss up. okay sent my demo i got a call back from this guy he goes i'm charles farrell i love your song sauce so that was like the first version of one of my hits called baby's got sauce i love this this song sauce is a hit wow I'm a street musician, I don't know anybody. Right. I can't get a date, I can't get laid, I have no money. I'm living on macaroni and cheese, tuna fish and onions. You know? <laughs> and this guy calls me and he says, oh, it's come for a meeting, okay. So now we go to a meeting. Oh, I want to meet you to meet some of my other acts. So he's managing, this This was, so this was around the time of New Kids on the Block, right? So everybody, right, that wants to dabble in the music business wants to find the next New Kids on the Block, all right? Now he's telling me you're going to be the next Bob Dylan. You have a lot of words. The labels want songs with more words in them, more lyrical content. <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be in Vegas in six months, fucking hookers. <laughs> and he told me this. I was like 19, and I was like, "Yeah, oh, are you serious? I mean, I couldn't get a date. I was like, really? Hookers?" Already, <laughs> you're
0: like this. This guy's the best manager. I don't care if my record gets made. I'm getting laid by oh, hookers in Vegas.
1: Are you kidding me? I was like, this is like everything a you know 19 year old dude dreaming about with his bottle of lotion every night. <laughs> oh my god! So, so we to this meeting, and then it, this the other acting managers. This is great. So you remember this legendary story when Mike Tyson got in a fight outside of a bar.
0: Yeah, with uh, Mitch Mitch Blood Green.
1: Mitch Blood Green. So Mitch Blood Green (laughs) was the other act that he managed. (laughs) Mitch Blood Green looked like Barry White, and he literally had, like, a maroon floor-length fur coat. And it was probably, like, summertime. Like, cherry curls, down to his shoulders, and he was like, hey, G love, (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck's going on? I'm like, all right, yeah, this is perfect. I'm making it. And um, and then I had another guy I was working with, this guy Tom DeMille, and I started making demos with him. And and then around the same time, I met my drummer. And again, that was like another chance, everything. That's why I say always take the gig because you never know what's going to happen. Like, always take the meeting, Always take the gig, never, don't go, you know? Cause you never know, right? You know what's gonna happen if you stay at home, right?
0: Right, oh yeah. The minute you
1: set foot out of the door, you never know really what's gonna happen. So, um, one night I was at this part-time job I had. Oh, this street musician friend of mine had a band. Oh, they're opening, not canceled. Can you do the gig? Yeah, I'll do the gig. Let I me mean, ask my boss. She was cool. Go do the gig. Get on my skateboard. Go home. Get my gear. Go to the gig. There's no one there. The op- I play for the opening band, the bartender, the cocktail waitress, and the sound guy. and One guy who's the cocktail waitress's boyfriend who's looking through to help wanted because he can't make enough money playing the drums. And that's my drummer. And he comes up to me after the gig. And then he says, that was really cool. I said, thanks. I walked away, because I'm a drummer. I turned around. Now here is my guy. Finally, I attracted like, my drummer is one of the greatest drummers in the world. I, I attracted Jeff, my drummer. He was a blues drummer, a jazz drummer, a funk drummer. He didn't even know hip hop, but he played all of the stuff that all my favorite hip hop records were sampling. So I'd play him like a guru. Or a tribe called Quest tracking and you'd be like, "Oh, that's a meter sample, or that's a, you know, that's a Charles Mega sample." Oh, well, I don't even know who Charles Mega is, right. you know. <laughs> but you don't know who Q-Tip is. Yeah. So look, we're <laughs> teaching each other something, you know. So that was, yeah, that was how we started the band right there too.
0: So, so, so where did you take the band from there? I mean, where do you, where do you start running? I mean, or, do you stay in Boston? Do you decide to come back to Philly? I mean, where do you start? getting the gigs and getting the band formulated where you you know you have something special I mean you always knew that you you know you wanted to be different you had something special but now when you're incorporating other people in it's a big step but there's probably a trust that you have to get involved with
1: yeah yeah for sure um, Jeff um, Jeff Clemens aka the house man um, so he was 10 years older than me and so he became like big brother. And again, I didn't really know. I didn't know anybody in the city. Now I had been. So this would have. So if I had moved up there in June '92, now this was uh, um, December of '92, and um, after a full summer playing on the street and my very first gigs playing in and um, Jeff had a little juice around town because he was an established drummer in the Boston music scene, so he said, you know, go talk to Martin at the Middle East, and go talk to so-and-so, T.T. and the Bears, and all these other music venues, and come, you're playing with me, and fans G Love, and Special Sauce." and. That's the other thing. I, I wanted to call the band Special Sauce, but he says no. It has to be G Love and something.
0: How did you come up with Special said, Sauce? Oh, was,
1: well, I just, he, I, I just always liked that phrase, and we we would say like when we were radioing. My parents liquor cabinet, cabinet, or any parents liquor cabinet, like take a little bit from each bottle, right? And then my buddy sense. Nick would be like, "Yeah, this is a special sauce. this is a special sauce." So it's just always one of those things that always stuck with me, and I. And it was just like, again, like a lot of stuff. I think a lot of stuff in your life, it's just like falling in love. Like you just know it. Like right, it's like a knee jerk reaction. Same thing. Like Jeff said, what do you want to call Ben? Special sauce. Oh well, it can't be special sauce. It's got to be G loving some. All right, G Love special sauce. Now he can. Now he can um, curse himself all the time because now he goes, "Why is it always about you, man? Yeah. Hey, you're the one who wanted to call G Love." <laughs> I just wanted to be in a band, man. I didn't want to
0: be the guy. Okay. So, so you start. Yeah. When do you When do you get the first demo? I mean when do you guys start really gaining the popularity? Because you have such a big following. And uh, when does this all start? Is it just from working hard, or when does this start? You feel like you're really getting momentum, and you're because you've been playing in Boston. You got the band. You got the name. When do you feel like you start getting momentum? And when do you start recording albums to sit there and push yourself more forward?
1: well i mean that i mean honestly that first year was just you know it's like one of those you have these certain times in your life and and this this year was certainly like uh i mean uh you know not that uh every year is not great but this was a particularly magical year in my life and i'll always look back on it with such amazement and just it, it just, it's making me well up right now thinking about it because everything was connecting. And um, so, yeah, so, um, every, I mean, all the littlest things lead up to these things. So, you know, even like I had one of my first first residencies was playing acoustic in, in this legendary rock and roll club in the Middle East, in Boston, in Cambridge. And they had an upstairs bakery, they had a downstairs big rock room, an upstairs smaller rock room, and they had a bakery. I was playing acoustic on the windowsill, and the waitress hated me. But the bartender, she loved me, and I had a big crush on her. Her name was Sabine, and she happened to date this guy, Mark Sandman, who was the lead singer, founder of this band called Morphine. Mark passed away years ago, but Morphine was a pretty huge band. And they got signed right before a year or so before we got signed. So, anyway. Jeff, my drummer, had actually tried out for morphine, but didn't get the gig, thankfully. And Mark didn't really care for Jeff, but he liked me. And his girlfriend said, Take care of G, because I was sweet on her, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So he gave us, uh, he said, Call Noel over at the Plowing Stars and tell him when morphine leaves for the road, you get the Monday night. I called Noel. Mark told me to call, blah, blah, blah. Those Irish guy, or Irish pub. Okay, yeah, come on in. We come down. First Monday night, you got to bring your PA down. No cover. Walk in. If you walk in that bar today, it's the same fucking regulars. <laughs> Plus or minus, you know, whoever is there now and whoever died. And uh, they all look up. They go, oh, this guy comes over. He said, we don't really like your music. We had not even set up yet. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just give us a chance. So by the end of um, six weeks, we had a line down the block. And that's how it was for the whole year of 93. And that's really where we cut our teeth and made our scene playing three sets every Monday night for 125 bucks, three sandwiches, and as much beer as you could drink until they found out I wasn't even 21 then it was a beer for me after the place was closed okay you know but that was where we cut our teeth at the plow and stars and um and from there you know we started making demos and then i would send demos out to wherever there was an opportunity so at that time there was this thing called the new music seminar in new york and I sent my tape there, and there was another one called the Philadelphia Music Conference in Philly. And the Philly, and I came home from my coffee house, part time job, and my roommate left me a note that said, Now, this is a basement, dingy apartment in Austin, Massachusetts. We call it the Roach Pad. Okay. There was like, you turn on the road, you turn on lights, it'd be like a party. In the middle of the floor, like 20 roads are scattered. So I come home from work, turn on the light, all the roads just run away. I see it by the phone. There's a note saying, oh, Dave Johnson from Studio 4, Rock House Records. Heard the demo, loves the song Fresh Lila, which was on the demo, but never on a record. Thinks it's a hit. Call ASAP. Oh my God, I felt like I won the lottery. Rough House Records was Philadelphia's premier hip-hop record label at the time. They had Criss Cross, they had The Goats, they had Cypress Hill, they had Schooly D. And for me, and this record label was on 444 North 3rd Street. I grew up on 338 South 2nd Street, so literally... 12 or 15 blocks where I grew up from the studio well that's where I got to. I had to move to Boston right and then to get Discovery out of Philly two right.
0: years later <laughs> yeah right around the corner
1: <laughs> right around the corner from my house
0: so what was the feeling man when you were finally in the studio making this album I mean and, and did you want to were you wanted to be so perfect that you were you were not sure how you would write the songs were you just ready into the material and you said screw it I'm just this thing's gonna be kick ass
1: um, it was, I, I think it was, it wasn't like a, no, no kind of bravado like that. It was more like, it was a really precious time, like, um, the music that we were experiencing at all our gigs and the euphoric nights that were happening in all of our shows in that year and the excitement that was building up from the people that were becoming our, fans and and the new sound that we we're creating and just the scene that was erupting around it in Boston was so exciting that when we came in the studio, you know, we were already kind of hooked on the energy from the gig. So all of a sudden it's the three of us in the studio and we've never made a record. Jeff's the oldest one. He has certain Stronger ideas how shit should go down, which didn't really line up with Gemini's. So it definitely wasn't like a, um, it wasn't easy. It was like a very like, and we were also trying to catch recreate this magic that we were feeling in all of our gigs in front of people. So it was um, the studio sessions, but we were tight and we had our thing. I mean, I, honestly when we finished the record i felt like it was a complete failure like the first record i was embarrassed by it i was to me it didn't capture like half of the magic that was going down at the show although we did capture a, a lot of magic on that record and then as time went on i realized wow you know we we really did capture the magic and we captured it Perfectly, because if we were as hyped up as we had been on a live show in the studio, it wouldn't have recorded as well. Like I remember specifically um, one of my favorite songs to play now and on that first record is called "This Ain't Living." And when we recorded that song, I had like a stiff neck, like you know, I had just from stress and overwork had this incredible st- stiff neck, and I can barely move my head. You know, whatever, everyone gets a kick in their neck, right? Not a comfortable way to play music, yeah, you know, or, or do anything. So I'm cutting this song, and um, I just felt like, oh, my God, it's so fucking lame. And my buddy, who was my rapping partner, Joshua, was there, and he was lifting us up. But I remember I, you know, I literally, like, I left the studio... Uh, and tears and I was just so upset because I wanted to feel a certain way right that I felt when I was in front of people and it was a very spiritual and and magical thing that we were doing and our conviction with the music and exactly what we wanted to do and everything was so clear cut at the time and it was just like it was like we were trying to make you know we were trying to we, we want to make the record that, that, like, the records we listen to. John Lee Hooker or Charles Mingus or Bob Dylan. And this was our shot to, like, make this. And um, so it was, like, heavy. Even though a lot of people think of our music, oh, G like, you know, Cold Beverage, Baby Death Sauce. Like, it's, like, all oh, tongue-in-cheek or funny shit. There's a, Like, even those songs, that there's a lot of heavyweight stuff and whether it's the grooves or the lyrical content, even in, even in the stuff that, on the surface, is kind of lighthearted. Like, go through those lyrics or any either, either one of those songs. Like, that's some really lyrical shit. And the grooves, too. You know, sophisticated, funky, like, real deal shit. And then there was the songs that were heavy in themselves. So there was a lot of, like, pressure we're putting on ourselves. And I definitely had, like, a breakdown. I had to leave and, uh, and it was it was tough. So, so yeah, we had we had our trials. We had some, but we also had our breakthroughs. Like there was this one night. I mean, this was the night that to me probably made the record. Um, we maybe were cutting throughout the day. You no, know, maybe not really getting too much magic tape. Take a break. Went upstairs and I remember I was staying outside of the studio for out on the street, which is basically um, it's an area called Northern Liberties, which now is kind of gentrified, but back then it was basically North Philly. You know, not the safest place you could walk around. Right. We're staying outside the studio, smoking a joint. This homeless guy comes up. I don't know, maybe we smoked a joint with the homeless guy. And then he, he kind of had such a, it was like all these exchanges, but it, was, it ended up being, he was so down and out, and it was so heavy, but he was like a nice guy, and he walked off, and then Bruce so went back down. It's like the weight of that interaction, and the realness of it, we thought let's cut blues music. So we cut it, and it was just one of those things. It was like, you know, the magic was in the room. We cut the tape and it was like that ended up being our first single and really this song that got us a deal and everything and it was a really important song for us and then after that we said well we're done for the night well jim and i wanted to keep playing jeff just give us one more group. oh what do you want to play uh, well jim said just play uh, a beat like this and he started off and then And then Jeff comes in with his drum beat and then the tape was rolling because they were rolling, rolling, trying to catch the magic. And Jim came in with this bass line. I happened to have the right harmonica. And then we did this 15-minute freestyle, which we later edited and did the opening track, which was the things I used to do. So that was just like a complete magical moment that we happened to capture on tape and thank God because that song is like, so that record, our first record, sort of the things I used to do, which is a free style off the top where my voice cracks and like, you can feel the energy and it crackling in the air and then blues music, which was like our statement song. This is who we are. And this is the magical take of it. That, that both happened at night, so.
0: So, so as you, that as, you as you get going, when do you start going on the road and starting to get the following because you guys have a big following and you mm-hmm. were in Philly at the time I mean what, what what blew that up where you could get out on the road more
1: well um, you know shortly after that so nine months after our first rehearsal we signed a deal with Epic Records uh, so we went as far away from you know off the radar to working for one of the hugest corporations in the world basically uh, Sony Music and we all of a sudden had their backing so and we had a record that was reacting right away and it didn't react on some kind of pop level but it reacted on this very grassroots level and I think people either it was like a polarizing record people either thought well, wow, this is me, or I, this is bullshit, you know, right. and a lot of people hated hated us, and a lot, a lot of people loved us, and that's, and to this day, I, I think, you I actually, I shouldn't say a lot of people hated us, but I, I think it's more like, a lot of it was like, you either have never heard of g Love and Special Sauce or you're like a huge fan, right? So basically what it is now, like, you'll say, you know, um, You'll say, um, you know, G Love and Special Sauce, and they may never have even heard of it, or it's their favorite fucking thing
0: ever. You know, well, what I, mean? I I got that on Facebook. People are yeah. like, oh, oh, like when I put it on Facebook, people were like,
1: oh yeah, we it love it. Oh, or, or they never heard of it.
0: In fact, my one friend loves your music, and he wants to jam with you. He's uh, his name's Rich Redmond. He's Jason L. Dean's drummer, and he said he he wants he wants to jam with you because he loves your music. Oh, cool. So, so yeah, I
1: mean, so there was like a lot of love. So you know, we hit the road. We hit the road in the van, and uh, I think we had good instincts. And you know, we loved the fight. So we we hit the road, and and then you know, we never looked back. And um, and now it's almost twenty five years later, and that's what we're doing. We're still doing it. And actually, today, Jim, Jeff, and I had. Today's a funny day because we're actually off, but we're playing a wedding. And today, Jim, Jeff, and I had a rare chance for the three of us, kind of a laid-back day, to go get a fight. So we go to get a fight, and we run into this actor, Jeremy Piven, who I jam with before because he plays drums. And then the owner of the bar came over and said, do you guys want to play a gig here tonight? And so we said, all right, we'll come back and play, play session
0: 4. <laughs> so you're, it's your day off and you're jamming tonight.
1: I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, that's just kind of like, that's kind of the way, uh, kind of the way we roll, like, we roll, I guess, you
0: know? Now, now, you're on tour for how long right now?
1: Um, I mean, we're kind of on tour always and forever. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, this tour goes through September and then, um, and then uh have some, spot dates and our main tour will crank up in January.
0: Now, do you ever play LA, because I was looking, you're playing in San Luis Obispo, you're playing in Pet- Petaluma, I, even, I know that's like north, do you guys ever come through LA, or are you just... Uh... Oh
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll come through LA in uh, January, Okay, now, or actually February, actually, actually maybe we'll be there in February, March this year, I
0: think. Now, where do you usually play when you come to LA?
1: Well, we we've, we've been playing the House of Blues on Sunset Strip for like the last you know however many years, but um, now that that's closed, um, got I'm not sure I'm not exactly sure which venue we'll play at this year.
0: Now, now you you played the uh, Man a few nights ago, right? Yeah. Now, what's that like being a Philly kid playing the Man? We all remember seeing you know, y'all you remember reading. I remember reading the Philadelphia Inquirer. You always look at the concert section. and You see, you know. Who's playing the man? Who's playing the Spectrum? Who's playing Tower Theater? And they were always like the cool tours. And the man was always in the summer. How? What was it like playing there? Because it where you grew up. I mean, it's 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 your it's your city.
1: I mean, put it like this: at Soundcheck, I had like a really emotional moment where it just like all welled up inside of me to be playing the man, and you know, it was just, like a brief moment, but. You know, there's moments when like tears come to your eyes, and you're like, "That eh, was a really uh, special thing um, for me to come to man, I, especially with Blues Traveler, um, who we supported on the show. Because one of the first times I jumped over the fence at the man was to watch them open up for the Homer Brothers. So it was like a full circle type of thing. You know, I went from being a kid that used to break into this place to now I'm, you know, I'm playing it, and they're paying me.
0: Now yeah. now you also you came out with a book?
1: Oh, I have a um, children's book.
0: Yeah, how'd you get into that? Because I, I, It's funny because Lisa Loeb was just on my show and she wrote a children's book. She seems like a lot of musicians are doing that. And now your book's for kids whose dads travel, right?
1: I think it's just like if you have a kid and you like to write and you'll write yourself a children's book because you have your kids so much, you know what I mean? Um... You know, um, yeah. When my son, who's I have a six month old and I have a fifteen year old, and when my fifteen year old was a boy, like he used to say, um, "You know, I'm always leaving." So I'd say, "Look, I'll be right here." Point to his heart. Where I'm, where 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 am I gonna be? he point to his heart. You know. So we had this. I just came up with this concept, little daddies, which was like, um, you know, just there's little tiny, like little, you know, like little figures, like Star Wars figures, imagine of me, like living inside you, and there's little figures of you living inside of me, and whenever I'm bored, you know, your little guys will come out and play with me, and whenever you're bored, you think about me, and I'll be right there with you, you know what I mean, that, that type of thing, um, so yeah, that's, that's available on um, Amazon.com, and um, it's called Little Daddies, a book, for kids with traveling dads. So it's really wonderfully illustrated by this German woman who uh, I, I met her when we opened up for Jack Johnson in Cologne or something and i just strikingly gorgeous German girl. Hey, how you doing? Oh, so what do you do? Oh, I'm an illustrator. Oh, awesome. I have a children's book I wrote. I need to illustrator. I mean, her work was unbelievable.
0: And once again, was, uh, Jeff, once again, you said it's just things I can't even happen.
1: pronounce her last name. But, um, yeah, she, it's really beautiful. You should
0: check it out. Are people, is it selling? And do your fans buy it? Do they, they sit there? I mean, how's how's the sales? And you probably can get all your fans to buy it.
1: Um, honestly, I don't think it's sold a lot. You know, honestly, we, we, we had an agent and we tried to shop it for you know, six months or whatever, we engaged with this literary agent and they were unable to get a publishing deal. So uh, eventually we we just kind of soft released it on Amazon where it lives. But, um, you yeah, know, hopefully after this podcast, um, a couple of people will check it out. But I, it is a, it's a beautiful book and I think a lot of people, loved, even if you're going away for a weekend, you know, it, it's, it's a great thing to read for your kids. It's good.
0: it's good. Now, how'd you get into the sauce business? I saw on your website you're selling sauce.
1: Um. Well, you know, I always wanted to have something that kind of, to me, was kind of representative of the music, and I'm a big foodie. I'm from a big foodie family, um, and I always thought that'd be really cool to have hot sauce, because I love hot sauce, and you know, how cool would that be? I had to convince my manager for, like, years and years, so we finally got it in 2007, and that's been kind of grassroots as well, Um, and that's kind of, I think, for me, the beginning. I I look at, like, um, the next 20 years of my career, like, I, I look up to someone like Jimmy Buffett, who certainly made... Very credible music, although mostly overlooked by the music industry and the critics, but certainly not overlooked by the masses of millions of people that enjoy his music and all his other, you know, land shark beer and margaritavilles around the world. Right. So, um, you know, to me, we've gotten some love from the critics, a lot of love from the fans, a lot of my music happens to be things that you can like it's like very visceral like you could the music you could taste it the music you can visualize it the, the lyrics and the music give you a feeling a lot of people relate to summertime people relate to surfing people relate to food so it's a kind of a culture so to me the hot sauce is like the first step hopefully which will kind of brand my music my personality and the vibe that I'm bringing across to an even bigger situation that, that takes place off the stage, you know? And the music will always be the catalyst and the, the reason for everything. But, I mean, you look at a guy like Jimmy Buffett, and who I just joined on stage a week and a half ago in, in Milwaukee. And you see a guy who's a billionaire and you see a guy who couldn't be happier to get up on stage and play his music in front of all his adoring fans and sing the songs and have a good time with it. Not because he needs another dollar. I mean, you know, he certainly doesn't need to work. He loves to do it. He loves the music. It's just like everything else. You know, the music, the whole thing, and I have a ton of people that have Right, what happened to all those people that have those huge hits? They just go away and count their money. I don't know, but Jimmy Buffett's inspirational because he's made billions of dollars playing music through his music-inspired products, and what you can see in his face, and then the people around him, like there's no happier time in his life still. What is he seventy five and getting on stage and playing
0: the guitar? And the guy does everything. Seriously. He does books. He does movies. He does. I mean, yeah, he's just. It's amazing how he does it. Who was okay? We we have to wrap up wrap up soon. But who was the one person you jammed with that you went, holy shit, I can't believe I'm jamming with this person? Um, I mean, Jimmy Buffett the other
1: night. That was one um, last night playing. Uh, with John Popper, we've been on tour with Blues Traveler. So getting to play doing, you know, or you know, doing harmonicas with John Popper is just unbelievable. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I can. That's one thing I've had the opportunity to really share the stage with a lot of my idols and the hip hop ones as well, from KRS One to Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul. Um, I think anytime get to get on stage with someone whose records you enjoy and whose records not even enjoy it like way deeper than enjoy it, like have you know you have influenced your life very profoundly you know um records that you have like you know made the most beautiful love to your woman to <laughs> or like records that you've taken a trip with and been part of your life and then you get to play music with these people that created them and, and not only that just have a beer become or become even like family like John Hammond is my number one influence like I think of him as my second father now you know and like we have family dinner and um, he's the reason that I can do what I do yeah. you know so that's the biggest blessing I think about doing what I do is getting to meet and and be respected by the people that yeah, I put I treasure above everything in the world.
0: See, that's awesome, man. You know, we're times up. See that this hour, this hour flew by, man. I, I, I want to thank you for coming <laughs> on. I mean, you know, it's funny because I was talking to your manager, and I finally like, we worked it out, which is good. And then, uh, yeah. So, okay, so now tell tell my listeners your Twitter and your Instagram and your website and all that stuff. Okay. All
1: right. So our Twitter is at glove, just at glove. Uh, my Instagram and Snapchat, at PhillyGLove, PhillyGLove, and Facebook, GLove and Special Sauce. Our website is www.Philadelphonic.com, and the hot sauce is www.gloveshotsauce.com
0: So people, check him out. Also, follow me on Twitter. I'm at CooperTalk. That's at CooperTalk. You can also go to, uh, listen, you can just go to my website where I have 550 episodes up there. It's uh, coopertalk.net. You can also email me there, cooper, at coopertalk.net. And, you know, over to Christmas time and up the holidays coming up, if you want to have an interview with your boss at a Christmas party, hit me up there. For the right price, I'll come out. I'll do it. Your, your workers will love it, and they'll love you. Also, my other website is stopthesalt.com. Remember when I had that heart problem a few years ago? I had to change my diet. I had to watch my sodium. So I went out and I wrote that a cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. They're cooking for one. It's basically, it's go to stopthesalt.com. You can sit there and you can get it from Barnes and Noble or Amazon, but if you go to stopthesalt.com, I make more money and that's sort of what it's all about. So go there, buy it, I'll sign it. It's 120 recipes, no pictures to intimidate you. None of the big, uh, big ingredients that you, it's it's just easy to use. And also don't forget my uh, sponsor, Blowfish for Hangovers. Blowfish for Hangovers. During football season, you're going to be hungover. So check them out. Go to fourhangovers.com. That's fourhangovers.com. And put in the promo code COOPER and get 20% off. So don't forget, go, to, go check out G Love's music. Go buy his sauce. Go see him when he's in town. And that's about it. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week.